What is up, consumies? This is Jamie Lewis, host of the Consumed Podcast, where eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers sit at my creaky kitchen table and talk about life and flavor with me. You're at the table too. Thanks for joining us. Before I introduce today's guest, here's a little bit about sponsors of the Consumed Podcast. Do you want to be more intentional about the meat you eat and feed your family? Have you even considered giving up eating meat entirely because you can no longer justify supporting the inhumane and industrialized system that brings meat to your dinner table? If you're looking for a simple way to guarantee you always have access to healthy, sustainably farmed meat and wild seafood, the Larder Meat Co. is here to help. Since 2016, Larder Meat Co. has been delivering farm-raised beef, pork, chicken, lamb, and wild seafood sourced from right here in the Golden State to customers who demand the highest quality proteins as well as intentional sourcing standards and transparency. A convenient club box from Larder Meat Co. makes it easy to automate the most important part of your monthly food budget. You can build a custom box or choose from one of the many curated bundles that LMC offers. As a Larder Meat Co. customer, you are supporting the ever-dwindling ranching industry that has fed us for generations, and you're building a sustainable future for your family, our ranchers, and the planet. Use code CONSUMED at checkout to save $25 on your first subscription and check healthy farm-raised meat and wild seafood off your grocery list for good. That's LarderMeatCo.com. Promo code CONSUMED for $25 off your first subscription. Consumed is sponsored by Mid-State Containers, Cargo Storage Containers, and Refrigerated Shipping Containers for sale and rent in California. You may not understand how Mid-State Containers could change your life, but the truth is many, many guests on the Consumed podcast use Mid-State for their projects. Containers can serve as wine storage units for case goods for private collections and even tasting rooms. They can be refrigerated storage containers for breweries, kegs, and fruit during harvest for wineries. Mid-State Containers outfits coolers and freezers for ranchers, farmers market growers, orchards, and butchers. Containers can make great pop-up coffee bars and berry containers for root cellars. My guest from Season 10, Krista Flieger, from Lonely Palm Ranch, uses her Mid-State Container for an office on her property. Other ideas include schoolrooms, music and photography studios, and there are other things that can be grown, stored, and processed in a Mid-State Container, so use your imagination and get on their website to request a quote, midstatecontainers.com. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Okay, on to the episode. Dr. Ricky Volpe is a professor of agribusiness at Cal Poly State University in San Luis Obispo, where he teaches... Okay, hold on. I'm getting this from his LinkedIn profile. The Economics of Food Retailing Industrial Organization and Applied Econometrics, which is a word I didn't even know existed, and I like it very much, actually. In plain English, Ricky teaches about grocery stores, how food is sourced, how it's moved, how it's valued, priced, organized, sold, and understood. 
It all started with a road trip he took with his girlfriend, now wife, to Walmart stores all over New England, and that's a fascinating story. But if there's one story that hooks you into my conversation with Ricky, it's going to be the one about how cigarettes are responsible for the existence of Trader Joe's. Okay, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ricky Volpe. Oh, and P.S., when we talk about Ricky's last name, I am wrong. It does refer to a fox. You'll understand when you get there. Okay, here's Ricky. Trivia, how did you get going with trivia at um, Broad Street Pub? I went to I went to graduate school at the University of California, Davis. Mm. And my very good friends in grad school and I, we formed a trivia team. And we competed every Tuesday night at a, a Thai restaurant called Sophia's in downtown Davis. And we absolutely loved it. And we were regulars and we were very competitive. And uh, over time, the host asked if every once in a while we as a group wanted to guest host Mm -hmm. trivia and I loved it I mean I really lapped it up I really really enjoyed being on that side of it so um, I began basically since I moved here I started looking around for an opportunity to maybe do that but pretty much every place in town either already had it or didn't seem interested Mm -hmm. in it Um, and then along came Matt Cross Mm -hmm. and uh, Matt and Bill opened the Broad Street Public House and I saw my opening and so I asked Matt if I could host a trivia night we decided on Sundays because it seemed like that was a pretty light night around town yes. for trivia. Yeah. Um, you know, we're targeting the demographic of that pub, you yeah. know, and their schedules. Locals. Exactly. Yeah. Locals, you know, not necessarily college students. They're, of course, welcome, but the, the crowd's a little bit older than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the questions tend to reflect that. Um, and it's just been it's a blast. I've been doing it for... Just about four years now. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love trivia so much. I miss it so much. Well, you got to come back. I know. When when Jake and I lived in San Francisco, we would occasionally go down to the you know Irish bars. That's that's the thing. Um, we would have so much fun. Where I love trivia. I love Jeopardy. But you, like I was saying before, if you get into sports and science not going to be much help. And I think that's why the best trivia nights are, you know, the team sports, the team competitions. Yes. Because the idea is everybody has their competitive advantage, you know, where they're strong and you put your brains together Mm -hmm. and then whatever comes your way, hopefully somebody has an idea as to how to answer those questions. Yeah. What time does it happen on Sunday nights? Sunday is at five. Okay, great. And bring bring friends who have other knowledge bases. Bring friends. The best teams are inter intersex and intergenerational. Those okay. are the most successful teams. I thought that that was the name of the team. I'm like intersex. Oh, yeah. That is Int- a great name. Intersex. Well, now hopefully somebody's listening and will take that idea. <laughs> no, that's because... my name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so um, one other thing that I'm thinking of. I love names and I love um, linguistics. And your last name has something to do with wolves. Is that true? I think so. Okay. That's so, the Latin root. Volp is, vol is, is wolves. So if you ask my wife, it's fox. Is that related oh, to the shoot. wolf? I could be wrong now. I'm thinking, no. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, to be fair, over the years I've heard both. And believe it or not, despite it being my name, I've never looked it up. So I actually really can't come down on this one side or the other. But Heather is pretty convinced it's Fox to the point that it's in her Instagram handle and there's a Fox sticker on our van. Oh, then that's a real commitment there. Yeah. So either way, I think we're going to stick with it. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Um, Why? What do you teach at Cal Poly? Let's, Let's begin with that. Great. I'm in the agribusiness department, which is a part of the College of Ag, Mm -hmm. which is 
something that Cal Poly is known for, right? Agriculture Cute. and all that. And um, the agribusiness department really kind of stands apart in the College of Ag because Cal Poly's motto is learn by doing. And so if you visit folks in plant science or crop science or dairy or food science, many of them, especially the upperclassmen, are working with their hands, right? Mm -hmm. Making something, building something, correcting something, refining something. And we're focused on the business side of things. So we like to think of ourselves as sort of synthesizing everything that's going on in the College of Ag and focusing on the holistic business side of these things. How does it tie into making this a business, fitting into the market, turning an idea into reality? There's a lot of entrepreneurship and agribusiness. Mm -hmm. That's our focus as a department. I teach almost exclusively upperclassmen, um, third years and fourth years, mm -hmm. and my specialty is food retail management. So okay. um, I teach AGB 404. I teach it two or three times a year. It's focused entirely on the retail sector. I also teach classes on supply chain management, which is that's the, the companies that sell to the retailers, mm -hmm. you know, vendors, distributors, wholesalers, teach classes on logistics, mm -hmm. how it all ties together, how things get from point A to point B, how that works out. And I do a lot of work in data analytics, teaching students how to mess around with spreadsheets and run stats and forecast things and all that. Did you work in the field before you started teaching? I got my degree, my PhD from UC Davis in 2010, and then I spent four years working as a research economist with the USDA Economic Research Service. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's in Washington, D.C. Uh -huh. It's a great place. It was a great job. I learned a lot. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now if I didn't spend four years there and learn a lot about data sets and collaborations and policy issues and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I knew I wanted to be in the classroom. I knew I wanted to teach. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to get out there and give that a shot. So here I am, but I do still, I work very, very closely with USDA. Almost all of my research is in collaboration with folks at USDA. Do you kind of have a fast track to information with them and collaboration with them because of your work with them? I have... Um, pretty consistent access to proprietary data that USDA owns and sort of manages for these research projects. So you, I'm sure you've heard of Nielsen, like yeah. the Nielsen TV ratings. Sure. So Nielsen sort of collects and owns these really, really powerful data sets on consumers' food choices, mm -hmm. store scanner data, that kind of stuff, store locations. Um, you know, there's a lot of really kind of deep, proprietary, granular information mm -hmm. there. But folks like me, academics, can work directly with USDA uh, via these confidentiality agreements, third-party agreements, get access to the data, and work on projects that are of mutual interest to USDA and you know our that's, department. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great stuff. It's yeah. all policy-relevant stuff. It's really cool. What is something that's... like? Uh, lots of questions. So with COVID... Um, you must have been very busy thinking about supply chains and uh, and clogs therein. Is that true? Oh, I think I think it's safe to say that I will be talking about and working on issues related to COVID. I mean, maybe for the rest of my career. No. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I'm not saying it'll be the sole issue, but COVID was so so fascinating, it was like revelatory. Yeah, because what I've been saying about COVID really ever since it hit. Well, I shouldn't say it like you know, not the not the day it hit, but two or three months into COVID, it was pretty apparent to me and a lot of folks who kind of think like me and are in the you know in the field that it wasn't necessarily that COVID 
was this major disruption and shock that changed everything. That's true to an extent, and we can talk about that. But in my view, what COVID did was it, it shined a light on all of these structural issues that were affecting the food supply chain and were really sort of deepening over time, and they just became apparent. They came out into the light because of COVID. And um, now... Folks like me, folks at USDA, folks, you know, at the land grants all across the U.S. are sort of really, the wheels are spinning thinking about this. Like, okay, you know, what can we learn? What can we figure out? How can we maybe, you know, come up with some ideas for not only improving these structural problems, but being ready for the next big shock, the next mm -hmm. big issue? How has, has anything changed since then, has anyone in, in supply lines, have they learned anything? Has anything been adjusted? Or was it just like, wow, that was hard. We're going to keep working in this very broken, I call it broken. I, I, you can tell me otherwise, but it seems to be quite broken system. I don't have, on what I'm about to say, I don't have data. I don't know if anybody has data, but here's my perspective. I think that probably the number one lesson we learned from COVID is that consolidation in the food supply chain, so concentration, the sure. idea being that uh, whichever segment you're talking about, production, uh, manufacturing, processing, retail, um, as the number of firms get bigger, uh, I'm sorry, backwards. Smaller. Yeah, as the number of firms get smaller and the firms themselves get bigger, yeah. that's, that's consolidation. There are advantages to that. And there's a mm. big reason why the food supply chain, food systems have become markedly, dramatically more concentrated over the last 30, 40, 50 years, you know, reducing transaction costs, efficiencies, economies of scale, all that kind of stuff, you know, deeper investments in R&D. But COVID was very effective on illustrating some of the downsides mm -hmm. of consolidation. And it seems pretty clear now that largely because of consolidation, our supply chain had become very rigid mm -hmm. and inflexible. You know, um, specialty crop growers up and down California typically nowadays have a relatively small number of potential buyers for their mm -hmm. commodities. Mm -hmm. And importantly, their buyers tend to be concentrated in marketing channels. So it's it has become increasingly common for a grower, shipper, to or a, or a packer, you know, to sell almost exclusively to either food service, retail, mm -hmm. or institution. So mm -hmm. that's what I mean by sort of these rigidities. And due to a number of reasons, uh, regulation being a big one, um, the lines, the, the barriers between these different marketing channels are not very fluid. They're not very permeable, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So this degree of consolidation and specialization became a really, really obvious problem when COVID hit because if you're a grower of any sort of a commodity, but especially these high-value, very perishable... Give me an example. Oh, tomatoes. Okay, you know, raspberries, yeah. Yeah, yeah. something well, like well, that. Well, actually, you know, I'm glad you said berries might be like the... The number one because they're so perishable. So they're perishable so delicate. and so high value. Mm -hmm. You know, but their value by weight is mm -hmm. just probably number one, you know, um, among specialty crops. And so we had all these growers of berries, tomatoes, broccoli, leafy greens mm -hmm. who had nowhere to go. You know, nowhere to go with their... Um, with their output, with their products. And I'm not sure to what extent this has come up in previous conversations you've had, but I mean, this led to an enormous amount of food loss and food waste and, you know, inefficiencies. And then that was also a major factor for why food prices leapt so much because these food companies needed to recoup tremendous losses on foods that they were unable to sell. And again, it's really that rigidity. I'm not here to say, we'll never know the counterfactual, but, um, 
if we had a supply chain that was a little bit more fluid, a little bit, a little bit less consolidated, I do believe we wouldn't have seen issues to that magnitude when when COVID hit. But the question of has anything changed? Has <laughs> oh, right. it? Oh right, sorry. That's how no, I love all the background, but yeah. I want to know. Did no, anyone learn anything? That's how. Anecdotally, I want to say yes. Okay. Uh, anecdotally, and this is largely through conversations. You know, we uh, maybe my favorite thing about my job is that um, our students are amazing and our students go into California agribusiness. That's what we're training them for. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. So I've got alumni, friends up and down the state. You name a food company in California and I can probably name an alum who works there who I'm friendly with. You know, Mm -hmm. I have their number. We're in conversations. And I'm learning anecdotally through conversations at meetings like, uh, you know, the International Fresh Produce Association that it does seem like a lesson has been learned in this regard. That we we need to keep a a more, uh, a wider Rolodex, you know, when it comes to looking to who, to whom we're selling our commodities, right? Keep those, keep those lines open. And there were some... Some, there were some encouraging developments um, during COVID that I'm hoping will persist, but it's, it's hard to say. So an example um, further downstream in the supply chain is there was a direct collaboration between... So the union that governs food workers in retail is distinct from the union that covers food workers in food service. And so, yeah. And so, and this is all downstream, you know, the restaurants and the retailers and all that and, and the wholesalers. And so... When COVID hit and we had the lockdown and everything, we had an unprecedented problem where retail had a serious labor shortage. Yes. Yes. And millions of workers in food service had nothing Nothing. to do, right? And a lot of these people are hourly workers, right? Um, You know, very, very significant issues. And so there was a direct collaboration between these two unions that basically allowed labor to flow relatively freely from food service to retail. And that was a win for everybody. And um, my hope is that the lesson learned from that, you know, let's pierce the veil, right? Let's keep the walls open. Let's, Let's make these resources fungible, right? across marketing mm-hmm. channels, I hope it persists. I yeah. hope it lasts because in my mind, the bene- there are benefits for everybody, including consumers, maybe yeah. more, consumers more than anybody. When you say, um, so the conversation around consolidation is a tricky one. And I, I mean, it's so, it's, when I say political, I really mean um, on the grandest level, not just, you know, um, politics, but there is a, a political interest in moving away from consolidation by by people who perhaps been greenwashed I don't know but uh, people feel that it's a moral obligation to shop small um, when you talk about consolidation and how it's more efficient is that for the company or is that for the consumer Probably both, actually, come to think about it. So the efficiency gains via consolidation are absolutely realized by the company. Mm-hmm. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. So, you know, retail is a sector that I know better than any other. Um, and as I'm sure you're aware, um, there's very, very big news in retail right now because Kroger is putting up $25 billion to buy Albertsons, which for the record, I did not see coming. I didn't know that, actually. I don't follow that stuff. Wow, thank you. Oh, I mean, this you is... You heard it here for... I just don't pay... I don't pay attention to... Oh, yeah, no. This is in in my world... That's a big deal. This is, this is the biggest news I've seen in a long, long, long time. Mm. I mean, this is... 
that could be objectively wrong, but I think it's the biggest merger, proposed merger in the history of U.S. food retail. I mean, it's roughly mm-hmm. double the size of Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods in terms of um, wow. in terms of cost, and it's many, many times that in terms of store counts, employees, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, just as a in terms of sort of generalizing from an example on the order of efficiencies, right? Mm-hmm. The the idea here is that this newly formed company, it's going to be a merger of, uh, you know, say the second and fourth largest food retailers in the country, mm, right? Wow. If if, yeah. if, it, if it goes through, right? So, well, what's going on here? Well, the idea is that perhaps first and foremost, this larger company is going to be able to achieve more favorable prices in purchasing their goods mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from wholesalers, from vendors, from manufacturers, right? So that's that's an efficiency in and of itself and bringing their costs down. Because it has bargaining, it has the chips, um, and also because it can buy in volume. Oh, for sure. It's it's large. It's, it's being able to buy in volume and being able to sell to your vendors the idea of the exposure they get yeah, from yeah. you. I mean, look, Everybody wants to be on Walmart shelves, right? Yeah. Everybody. Is that number one? Walmart, Walmart is number one by an insane amount. Which is funny because I don't know anybody here who shops at Walmart for yeah, their well, food. Yeah, well, Walmart's not even super accessible here, right? No, I it's mean, not. the nearest one's, what, AG? I think so, yeah. And to be honest, I'm not even sure if that's a super center. I'm not even I don't know. Sh- it's not. I don't yeah. think so. I don't yeah. think so. So, um, yeah, it is it is funny how our kind of perspective here in the California Central Coast is different, right? People yes. people don't shop at Walmart. People don't really know Aldi, um, whereas these are some of the biggest and fastest growing retailers in the country. But Walmart is looking at some Something like last time I saw, two hundred seventy, two hundred eighty billion dollars a year in food in in, re, in retail receipts, mm-hmm. right? And if this merger goes through, the parent company Kroger now with Albertsons would be about half that. What? Yeah. So a monster. The it's the Iron Giant. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it is. Wow, that would only be half. Is Kroger number two, you were saying, and Albertsons is four? Kroger is, I believe, number two. They, Kroger and uh, Costco sort of are battling it out for number two in the country. Really? But I, I believe Kroger is currently number two, and then it would go Cro- Cro- and then it goes um, Costco, and then I believe it goes Albertsons. Okay. And Albertsons, of course, is very large, um, but the Albertsons um, acquired Safeway just, yeah. just eight years ago, right? Yeah. And that had huge 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 impacts locally right yes. on our market structure on our i mean that's that's why we have smart and final that's yeah. why we have california fresh market right that's mm-hmm. why we don't have those albertson stores anymore um mm-hmm. so um you know under that banner in town so anyway the reason why i brought up walmart yeah. is because everybody in the industry understands that walmart because of their size because of their fre- their presence because of the fact that 20% of american households shop there every week, something like that. You know, it might even be more now. Everyone wants to be on their shelves, so we know they're getting very, very favorable prices for their goods. And I don't even mean to paint that as nefarious. It's just economics, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And so uh, perhaps objective number one through mergers like this is to get closer to that. Understanding mm-hmm. no one, no one's going to be the next Walmart, I don't think. But to get bigger than that, to achieve you know better prices, and then to just achieve efficiencies all around, uh, you know, in terms of um, basically consolidating operations, right? Um, 
taking advantage of the best aspects of these two relative companies to sort of, you know, mm-hmm. create a sum that is greater than its parts, yep. that sort of thing. So, you know, um, lower variable costs, right? Lower transportation costs, um, l- lower labor costs. There's almost always, um, almost always the labor force is reduced following mergers and acquisitions. Of so, yeah. 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 So, so you know, all of these come down to efficiencies. And then you asked me, this is where it all began, mm-hmm. who is it for the um, consumers or... Yeah, efficient for who? Yeah, so then it's a question of will these efficiencies be passed on to consumers? And if you, after we talk, Google what's going on with this proposed merger, they know, Kroger knows they have to get through the Federal Trade Commission for this to go through. Um, because they have to get permission. Yeah, it has to be approved. So yeah. mergers and acquisitions in any industry above a certain size, I couldn't tell you what it is. It might even be a, a moving target based on the industry we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Need to be approved by the antitrust division oh, of, of, course. of yeah. the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and so they're well aware that they're going to have a fight on their hands. There's no question about it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's... Um, our politicians are divided on it. The industry is divided on it. I mean, the National Grocers Association, which represents independent supermarkets mm-hmm. all over the U.S., has already come out against this um, for obvious reasons. Yes, but we can, right. but we can talk about that. Um, so anyway, um, they they know that they're going to fight on their hands. So if you look this up, the narrative that's kind of uh, dominating their side of the conversation is: look we are going to become a leaner, more efficient machine. We're going to achieve lower operating costs, and this is going to translate to lower food prices during a very, very challenging period for American food consumers. And I mean, that last part is certainly true. We have seen food price inflation in 2022 that we have not seen since the 1970s. So, um, so a narrative saying we're going to lower your your grocery prices is is probably going to gain some traction. You know, it's probably going to have some effect. Is that going to happen? Uh, I don't know. Um, But history tells us that it's going to, the the extent to which these efficiencies are passed on to consumers in terms of lower prices Mm -hmm. is going to depend on just what's going on locally in all the different areas where this parent company exists. It's really the degree of competition they're facing and the incentive they have Mm -hmm. to keep prices as low as possible. That's so, of course the efficiencies will be greater. I mean, I can't imagine a world in which they wouldn't be. Uh, And then I think about our California Fresh here, that I think with Rancho Market has, what, like four or five locations. Their food is for sure more expensive. I'm sorry, CalFresh. We're friends with them. We love them, but their food is for sure more expensive. Actually, in some ways it is. You go for organic apples there, and it's a great price, actually. But but God help you if you need Parmesan. Um, so I worry about something like that as prices go up, uh, you know, in general people will not be able to shop in spots like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm just reminded with all of this, the difference between personalities and principles. The principle is everybody wants um, their food costs lower. Everybody wants, uh, I mean, to be fed. But then personalities come into it, and I want to support these people I know in our neighborhood. Um and we also, all of us kind of root for the underdog, right? Um, I don't know if this, I'm actually not sure if you asked me anything, but my comment. I don't but, think I did. But, but, but my, my comment based on what you said, and it actually comes back, you, you said something earlier that I've, I've heard a lot 
um, in various circles, which is the idea, you know, do we have some moral obligation to mm-hmm. support the little guy? Mm-hmm. My answer is no. Mm-hmm. However, I would add color to that. What I would say is this. I say that the little guy, however you want to define that, you know, the the non, you know, corporate conglomeration, they have cards to play, you know, and, and, and California Fresh Market right here in our town, I know them well, um, good friends with a former manager there at the one here in slow. Um, I think they're doing it right. Um, in, in, because do they probably have higher average prices than Vaughn's, than smart and final than food for less? Yes. But are they offering consumers something that they can't get at these? Yes, and they the, are. And the answer is yes. Yeah. Right. The answer is yes. Um, you, you walk into California fresh market and it hits you right away that you're in a place where there's a wide offering mm-hmm. of ready to heat, ready to eat foods. There's a smoothie bar. There's a coffee bar. There's all those delicious burritos. There's a great mm-hmm. hot bar over on the left there. It, there's, yeah. there's great pastries, great baked goods. And um, you can tell it's fresh. You can tell mm-hmm. it was all made that day or is made to order right then and there, right? There are tables outside where you can sit down and enjoy it and hang out with your friends or your kids or whatever. And that's an experience. Right, going to California Fresh Market is this experiential experience. I guess that doesn't work, but anyway, yeah. it is giving you something that you don't get. Plus, Andre the Giant over the peanuts, right? That I didn't catch. What's he doing? Are there? you serious? What's he doing? I'm not even gonna say. <laughs> you go in after we talk. I want you to go to the peanut butter. You know where you get the fresh. You know you squeeze the peanuts. Squeeze. I don't know what I'm saying. You've got to go and look. There's a huge sign. How could you miss this? Okay, but also CalFresh, they will ca- they carry imported products, you know, like things that you can't find elsewhere. There are several. I mean, Bob's Red Mill takes up like, you know, half of a row. Yep. Anyway, but Andre the Giant, you're going to go and you're going to look at that. I will be looking for that okay. during my next visit. Um, but yeah, so, so really the general point that I'm kind of making is that I think that there's a place for the little guy. Um we know without a doubt that a lot of the growth in the food retail industry in the last generation has been via what we call the little guys, which a catch-all term for that is non-traditionals, right? And mm-hmm. so what's the key to their success? It's not the idea that, that their message to consumers is, you should support us because we're small, right? Or you should support us because we're not Walmart. It's really just mm-hmm. that, hey, we're giving you something that you're not getting mm-hmm. at the big guy. Mm-hmm. We are your local grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're supporting the local high school, right? We're offering a whole bunch of local goods. And what I mean by local is like, you know these vendors. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. in our town. They're here. You they're know not they're driving ne- to yes. L.A. and coming back. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, right. yes. You know, customer service tends to be better, right? I'm, I'm speaking in broad strokes here, yeah. right? But customer service tends to be better and more attentive, right? The store's tend to be more aesthetically pleasing, mm-hmm. right? And people have a desire for this. So the idea isn't necessarily that I feel morally obligated to support CalFresh or Lassen's or whoever we're talking about. So they're giving me something that I'm not getting at the chains. Yeah. Yeah. Where does Trader Joe's fit into oh, all man. of that? Trader Joe's is amazing. The first thing I want to say about Trader Joe's... Because they're not considered... Are they not part of that, the biggie... You, you you describe maybe is it like the National Grocers Association? Are they part of that? The the people who are not corporately owned, or there was a definition for it. They're not they're not Kroger's. They're not Walmart. They're not. Bonds. Oh well, I think I was just saying mega, mega corporate conglomerates. You know these yes. these sort of like national chains with national footprints. Um, right. 
is Trader Joe's in the NGA? I don't think so. I don't think, I actually don't think so. They're um, so their own thing, aren't they? They are totally their own thing. So the first thing that I would say about Trader Joe's is that, um, I mean, I think they're fascinating, you know? Yeah. And I personally like Trader Joe's. Same. Um, however, the inner workings of Trader Joe's are a black box. It's totally opaque, isn't it? Total black box. <laughs> they are, they're almost the they're almost the only sort of like name retailer, like household name retailer I can think of. I don't know anybody there. I don't know anybody who works yeah. there. I don't I mean I mean corporate, right? Yes, I don't yeah. know I don't know anybody who's making decisions, who's involved in sourcing, yeah. any of that kind of stuff, right? And I think there's good reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um because like you said they do their own thing, right? Yeah. But what separates Trader Joe's from almost every other grocery store. Well, it's that they're what we call limited assortment, right? Mm-hmm. You go to Trader Joe's and everything says Trader Joe's on it, right? Not so, everything. Okay, that's Most everything. That's true. You can get Boursin cheese there, but it's only specific products that are that are labeled outside of Trader Joe's. I regret Joe's. saying everything, yes, but, cl- but close, right? Yeah. Close, yeah. you know... 90%, right? Sure, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so they have curated their own product assortment, right? And what I like to say about Trader Joe's, Trader Joe's in our town is positioned right next door to Food for Less. So brilliant. I mean, they share. So I'm glad you said that, yeah. right? Because to the untrained eye, that looks kind of silly, yes. right? Having to, but it works. Mm-hmm. And why does it work? Because what's Food for Less's game? Cheap. Yeah. Right. Food for less. <laughs> Fluorescent I mean, lighting. Yeah. That's I mean. What I mean. Is. Right. If we can speak. If we can speak freely. Right. Yeah. It's not. You don't go to shopping food for less because it's fun. Right. No. But their food, especially their center aisle stuff, is cheap. Yeah. It's really cheap, and a lot of that stuff that you can buy at food for less, real cheap, you can buy it anywhere. Yeah. Right. Heinz ketchup. Right. Goya beans. Whatever it is you're looking for. Right. So, Trader Joe's knows that Food for Less can't undercut them mm-hmm. because they don't carry any of the same stuff. Not yeah. technically, right? Trader Joe's has their Trader Joe's line mm-hmm. and Food for Less has all these national brands and their best to get private label. It's two completely different experiences mm-hmm. in terms of what you see in the store and what you can buy. And so, I mean, I know, you know, my wife is one of many people who takes advantage of the Trader Joe's Food for Less run. It's, it's my run. Right? Yep. It, and it just makes sense, right? And these two retailers end up having what's effectively a symbiotic relationship Mm -hmm. rather than a competitive one that wouldn't work if Trader Joe's was almost anybody else. Uh, Yeah. But but it works because of who they are. I know. The the way that I started shopping at Trader Joe's and Food for Less, which by the way, like Food for Less, God love them. I just, it's, I once, when I was, when I was editor of the local food magazine, I was, would talk a good game about shopping local and farmers markets and everything. And at the time, I was really able to do that. It was the kids were really little. I wasn't working as much, but I would kind of like hide in the rows there, like please God, please see me. Um, but I actually love their outer. I I shop at Trader Joe's first, and then um, I fill in the gaps with Food for Less. And uh, I'm a very typical San Luis Obispo um, adult, really, that does that. And I do get to farmer's markets as much as I can. I have a bread bike subscription. Like, we do as much as we can. But those are the places. That's the weekly run. The way that started was with the big um, strike 
of nine or of 2000 what was it like 2005 mm. when the big you know the Vons Albertsons um Ralphs those are the three I'm thinking of you were was, here in 2005 yes okay. and there was a huge strike was it only in California Maybe it was. Oh, I thought you'd know all so about this. To be totally, I'm sitting here nodding, but like to be honest, you're talking about something that was kind of before I became aware. Maybe it was just a California thing. I don't know, but there was this big labor strike, and I don't a remember, retail labor strike, huh? And I don't remember the details of it because my memory is shot, but it was really bad. And I would say, I would say eight out of ten of my friends gave up shopping at those big three forever and while that's happening it's this perfect storm everybody everybody was boycotting it i remember around thanksgiving my husband and i were in big bear because that's where his family lived at the time and they had a um a vons it's a small mountain community a vons and a stater brothers across the street and nobody would shop at the vons mm. that parking lot was empty on thanksgiving yeah so it was affecting the whole state but this perfect storm, you've got Trader Joe's and Food for Less next door to each other on the outskirts of town. That's where everybody shopped. And when I got a taste of that, I never went back. <laughs> and my, I grew up, I still have a Vons card because I have my old one from when I was growing up here. It was my mom's. And I'll use it only occasionally if I have to go into Vons. But I avoid it like the plague. It's expensive. Uh, it's super corporate. Anywhere you can get your dry cleaning and your food feels weird. To, and banking. It all, it feels like too much. And so, naturally, there are plenty of consumers who don't share that sentiment, right? Yeah, right, right. But, but you're, you're speaking to exactly why, that's exactly why the food retail landscape industry is changing in the way that it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, the, what you just said encapsulates everything from why the industry is changing so rapidly and diversifying and we're seeing the emergence of all these new formats, right? And also, frankly, why Kroger and Albertsons are looking to join forces. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. um, just to be, so everyone's clear, Albertsons is the parent company of Vaughn's, which, yeah. which, yeah, yeah. which you're describing. At the time, um, it was not, though. That's right. Yeah, no, that's right, because that's, that's only since early what, 2015? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you're coming at it more from the um, experience side of things, to oh, right? Oh, 100%, yes. Which is uh, totally valid. I mean, I think many of us, whether we realize it or not, it really matters to us what a store looks like, how it's laid mm -hmm. out, that sort of stuff, what's available in the store. But um, the way the way I tend to describe it or, 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 or think about it is that um, so most of us, nearly all of us, um, have one of two objectives when we go grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. uh, objective number one is we're on a budget and we want to feed ourselves or our families as inexpensively as possible. And those those people um, are the biggest group, right? I mean, that's the number one reason why Walmart's been so successful, yeah. right? In yeah. the in the 1960s, Sam Walton took a gamble and um, he was derided. He was laughed at in the industry because his his view was that these price-sensitive budget shoppers outnumber the people who want to have a good experience and want organic food or and he was completely right you know um but then so that's that's one block and then the other block are the people who are looking for some combination of the best food they can get their hands on a good shopping experience food where they understand the sourcing they know that it was sustainably sourced it's good for them it's good for their families and they they fall more into that camp and uh really where i'm going with this is whether you're in one camp or the other, 
a store like Vaughn's, a store like Ralph's, isn't really catering to you because mm-hmm. these traditional conventional supermarkets that have been around for 50, 60, 70 years, they have neither the lowest prices mm-hmm. nor the highest quality foods. Mm-hmm. And so over time, we do see their market share shrinking mm-hmm. as more and more people peel off to either this price-sensitive side or this quality-conscious differential, uh, experiential side. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, that, and that's the main reason why we're seeing this huge wave of mergers and acquisitions and them joining yes. forces, um, because that's their avenue towards growth. Mm-hmm. in the current landscape. And then there's that big box uh, thing with Costco, Sam's Club, that sort of thing is its own, it's a juggernaut in its own way. Um, so yeah, lots of different players, lots of different angles. As you're talking about these two sides, the side that is um, on a budget and it's very price sensitive and this other side that's concerned with um, you know, the the provenance of the food, the, <laughs> the, the perceived quality of the food, all of that. I have so often been in this other camp that, you know, like organic or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and that's shifted as I've gotten older. And it's been hitting me a lot lately how much value, how much like moral value we assign to one thing or another mm-hmm. one and and that we feel like uh i i will be honest and say as a card carrying coastal elite <laughs> i um i have really bought into that a lot and only recently have i begun to see um it actually started with a conversation on this podcast with aaron primer at san Luis coastal the food services director mm-hmm. Who was we were talking about how incredible their services were throughout COVID, how they fed so many families, so many kids. And I was so excited, and she's doing such a good job. She's being interviewed on Morning Edition, just amazing woman. But then when it came time for lunch, I would say, we're going to make you kids lunches. I want you to go. I don't want you to eat the food. And it just is like, hold on a second. Hold on. I have really, I have drank the Kool-Aid many times about that perceived higher value on foods that I make. I mean, I made, I made the bread for every peanut butter and jelly sandwich my son had in kindergarten. You mean you made it here at home? Yes. Oh. Which is fun and lovely Mm -hmm. and, you know, but that's how far it's come over the past, uh, what, 10, eight years. I've come around to really see like feeding people is critically important and less so important. Or I'm going to get myself in trouble, but here we go. Yeah. The quality thing, as important as it is, it does not stand in for the ability to feed people. Oh, great. Yes. Good, good, good. I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. I I think it might be. I think it might be. Okay. Okay. See, you're hanging with Cal Poly ag kids a lot. Uh, Yeah. Right. And there is a different, I've taught Cal Poly ag kids. There is a very... You taught at Cal Poly? Yes, I taught at, at Cal Communications. Poly? Yes. Yes. Huh. When's the last time you taught there? Right as COVID was beginning. I actually had a cough and I canceled the finals. <laughs> I was like, I can't. I can't do this. But there is a very... So I taught journalism. I taught kids who wanted to be journalists. And then I taught kids who were in ag and being forced to take ag communications. So I had very different kinds of students. Um... Those two groups represent, in many ways, the two the differences between those, you know, the the quality discussion and the the ability to feed people discussion. Okay, so 
I'm throwing a lot at you. I know it's hard to see where it even. Um, I don't know. But but but. So I'll, I'm going to come back to Walmart. Okay. I'm going to come back to Walmart. Walmart's super controversial. Everything is politicized nowadays, and yeah. Walmart is certainly no exception. But what I've learned about Walmart is that Walmart is actually a major player in shaping food access in the United States. Mm-hmm, for sure. So nobody, I don't even think Walmart, is going to argue that they have the highest quality produce, the highest quality meats, right? Lean proteins, nuts, seeds, leafy greens, that sort of stuff, right? That's not the argument. But if you accept sort of like the USDA standard definition of of what is food access, what is food insecurity, right? Walmart is the one all around the country in lower income rural areas, sparsely populated areas, building these large footprint stores mm-hmm. in which food, food that is compatible with the dietary guidelines for Americans, mm-hmm. is affordable. Mm-hmm. Now, then we can have a much longer conversation about, well, what kind of third-party certifications does Walmart have in their shelves? Mm-hmm. When Walmart says something is local, what does that mean, especially in a state like Texas, right? Yes. I mean, we can have that conversation. But I think that what I'm saying about Walmart's, Walmart's role in sort of alleviating food insecurity in certain parts of the country feeds into what you're saying. Does, yeah. that, does that, I mean, because we're not having a conversation about um, how was the food source, which in Walmart's case may well be very problematic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is Walmart effectively feeding a large share of the country and feeding them foods that otherwise they would not be able to find or afford? Mm-hmm. I think the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as you're talking, I tend to kind of like scattershot um, thoughts. One thing, though, that I regret saying is, or regret implying is that Cal Poly Ag students um, come from a different place. They put a different value on the discussion around food. I did encounter students who really believed that like uh, big ag was the solution to a lot of problems, mm. and that rubs me wrong sometimes. And and the history of that. Oh, but but to finish that thought. I think that they're absolutely right. Now that I've had a couple of years to really digest that, I think that they're right. And you're right. Those students are amazing in many, many ways. I have a sour taste in my mouth with Polly because of the whole thing that happened with Michael Pollan when he came to visit. Do you know anything about that? I didn't know he came. When was this? He came in 2000. Nine. Oh, thank God. If it was during my time here, I'd be so Oh, no. You would have known. Oh, yeah. Okay. You would have known. Yes. So he was coming to speak, and uh, he was just giving a solo presentation, and some ag business donors and alums were upset that he was coming to talk because he's so anti- Meat? Uh, I don't actually know. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. But um, administration actually made it a panel discussion with- differing viewpoints from sorry i actually cut you off what was the primary what was the primary reason for opposition to michael pollan because he's anti what he's anti uh big ag oh okay great yeah so there was a big discussion there and it 
it was painful to see Cal Poly admin cave to donors when really it could have been anybody coming through with an opinion and they would have given space for that person. I mean, they they brought, what's his name, Milo Yanomopoulos. Oh, that's right. That's right. So, so anyway, I, that that's part of where my bad taste is. And I'm putting you on the spot about things you know nothing about um, in terms of Michael Pollan. Um, <laughs> But there is that I have come more toward the middle, I would say, in in the way I think about food. And part of that is having a podcast where I have varying opinions. On. Well, that, and that's why, you know, so um, a podcast like this has real value in educating people, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, several times um, in teaching my classes, I'll just throw it out there to my students, you know, who here thinks that um, GMOs are bad? Yes, I love that discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've had I've had students who raise their hand like like this happened just before just before the pandemic because I'm in the habit it's going on right now. Um, and hopefully my dean's not listening, but I I'm in the habit of I offer extra credit to my classes in fall quarter if they bring in Halloween candy, yeah. um, and then it becomes this community thing where it's in bowls all over the building and it's it's fun, right? <laughs> but so um, you know I've had a student who you know would raise their hand and say, well I won't eat GMOs, you know, and they'll say this while they're eating a bag of uh, you know candy, and I'm yeah, like, yeah, well yeah. you're literally holding a bag of genetically modified corn in your hand. You know what I mean? You can't... Corn is in everything. It's in everything. Everything, And 96% of it is genetically modified, right? Mm -hmm. So we can have a conversation Mm -hmm. about the pros and cons of genetic modification and how it might be sort of like thinning certain plant varietals resistance to, you know, evolution. We, we We can talk about that and some of the stuff I don't know that much about. But the fact that GMO technology has significantly improved the food system's ability to feed us all. Yeah. I don't think that's up for debate. No. Um, no. So, yeah. Yeah. One last thing before I ask you about how you got into this. Uh, on the other side of that that student eating candy and saying they don't eat GMOs, I had a, a friend who was with a guy who was in ag at Cal Poly. We had dinner at Thomas Hill Organics up in Paso, and he was very anti being there. He didn't believe in organic. And it was a really interesting, I know you're, you're frowning. It was an interesting meal. But he said when he got his food, he was like, this is good. It doesn't taste organic. And I was just like, are we, are we serious here right now? It's one of my favorite stories. It doesn't taste organic. They broke up. He's been gone a long time, so I can share that. Um, you are from Boston originally, is that That's right? That's right. Yep. Okay. What part? I'm from a suburb called Stoneham, which is about 10 miles north of Boston. Okay. Mm-hmm. What got you into this line of business? Well, yeah, it's going to come back to Walmart again. I, I know I sound like a broken record. Mm. Um, I, I think like a lot of people, like a lot of the young folks that I interact with at Cal Poly, I was pretty aimless as an undergraduate. I mean, I started my... I went to U- the U- University of Massachusetts Amherst. Oh. Do you know Amherst, it? Amherst, of course. I went to Vassar. So I know a lot of people who are oh. Amherst, like they either transferred to Amherst or away from it because oh. it's such a specific kind of student that thrives there. It's such a wonderful school. Yes, but just to clarify in case there's any sort of confusion, I was at UMass. Not, oh, wait. Not Amherst, Amherst. I w- well, it was, it's in... Amherst, Massachusetts, but I was not at Amherst College. Got it. Sorry. Yes. Pardon um, me. Well, no, it's it's 
were neighbors. I mean, like, I, there was a, you know, we we took classes there, and they took classes with us. I, I mean, was actually thinking, how does an, uh, a, a food ag business guy get a degree that would lead from Amherst <laughs> to there? Okay, anyway. So. Yeah, no, I mean, they're very different. Obviously, Amherst yes. is a liberal arts school. and um, But anyway, um, so I was at UMass. Okay. Um, which is uh, a land-grant school. I, I don't know if that's ever come up in your... Um, but, you know, every state has at least one. They're public universities, and they receive funding from the federal government that is targeted towards research and education in agriculture. And they own property. That's right. That's yes. exactly right. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Yep. Um, yeah, so I was at UMass, and I started off as a... I was pre-vet, you know, mm. um, and I think I was... I think I was briefly an English major. I don't know. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it was, I was all over the place. But my know, sophomore year, late in my sophomore year, I took uh, an elective, just a gen ed, um, in labor econ. And I just, I just loved it. It just, it just clicked. Like the, I, the, the way that economics sort of, in my view, it's sort of, um, organized um common sense that's that, that's how I, it, it, it's sort of like everything that i learned in that class is well that makes sense hmm. oh and we can actually we can actually show it right we can actually show it either by modeling it and seeing that yeah mathematically it works out or there's data that that supports it right and i and i, and I got really hooked and i became really good friends with the instructor hmm. one thing led to another and i got a master's in the resource economics department also at UMass, I transitioned straight from undergrad to getting this. I was a still is awesome, fully funded mm. program. So, and a lot of people aren't aware of that. Um, it's something I plug all the time at Cal Poly that if you're at a land grant R1 research university, oftentimes you can be directly supported as a graduate student. So That's you, unbelievable. Yeah, so you're not taking on debt, right? Yeah, you know, your yeah. tuition and fees are covered, and in fact. If you work an assistantship, which is where I'm going with this, you you actually get paid to go to grad school. That's um, very cool. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. And so I got involved in a research project on Walmart. And it's a long story as to how the project evolved and all that. But my specific interest, and I was fortunate enough to have an advisor who I'm still friends with to this day, um, her and I developed a real interest in not how Walmart sets their prices, but how Walmart and the presence of Walmart affects the prices at other, other stores. Places, and yep. so I went on this adventure with my um, girlfriend at the time, now I'm married to her, mm-hmm. and we, uh, we drove all over New England and we visited Walmart supercenters. We visited these stop and shop and star markets, yeah, that that were in the immediate vicinity of Walmart, mm-hmm. and we visited supermarkets that were nowhere near a Walmart. Mm-hmm. And so I forget how many stores we visited total, but at each one, this was uh, I don't even think I had a cell phone. So like we're going around with a notebook, you know, yeah. just writing down prices. I even got kicked out of one or two stores, um, <laughs> but um, well, these retailers hold their cards yeah. close to the close to the vest. Um, but anyway, uh, it was super fun collecting the data and then crunching the. Like organizing it and running the numbers was, Mm -hmm. I just had so much fun with it. And then we found that um, there was a really, really statistically compelling case that at least as of 2003, 2004 in New England, when Walmart came to town, the conventional supermarkets near them lowered their prices significantly. Mm. Because I could show you a stop and shop here, you know, in Hadley, Massachusetts, where average prices were X, right? Mm. And then I could go to a stop and shop 10 miles away or 15 miles away in Leverett, Massachusetts, and those prices were 10, 15% higher. 
And and that store was nowhere near a Walmart, right? And so we Mm -hmm. felt that we had identified the sort of, we called it the competitive effect of Walmart on food prices. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very fortunate, super lucky that we packaged it up. I had a very, very supportive advisor and we packaged it up and we wrote a paper and we submitted it to a a decent, you know, journal and it got published. Mm, And and so now I have this publication right out the gate. I'm not even a PhD student, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I had the bug. Like I just, I just had it. I was like, you tell me that I can build a career around just like finding data or playing around with data and just seeing what's going on and testing theories. And I was just in, I was in. And so, um, you know, then from there it was history. I knew I wanted to give California a shot and and UC Davis had a really, really strong program in ag econ, a lot of great people, people interested in the food supply chain and food prices and rest is history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you came at it from an economic standpoint, which as you're talking about it, it's exciting. I mean, to think about crunching numbers, I love a good spreadsheet. I love oh. trends. I love all of that. Oh, great. Um, but also it speaks to, as you're talking about your advisor and you're, and you're obviously passionate about this, it speaks to the power of a good teacher and how you connect with a good teacher, how their enthusiasm for it and their, you know, curiosity about it. It's infectious. Oh, I, I mean... I certainly hope so. You know, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm going. Sure that's yeah. what I'm going for now. You know, yeah. in, in in my career, you know, trying to get. Um, you know, I really appreciate all the questions you've asked me about food retail, and it's clear that you also know a lot about it. You know, but I do think that a lot of people, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one years old. Um, have this idea that grocery is kind of fundamentally boring. Yeah. Um, you know, the way I always think of it, because it's the way I thought of it um, mm-hmm. when I was, you know, young, is that uh, everyone's got to eat, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how complicated is it to just buy Campbell's soup yeah. and and put it on the shelf? Their little and, food pellet. Yep, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. And just mark it up so that you're making a profit, and when it runs out, you buy more. Yeah. Seems pretty simple, right? And um, But the more I learned about it, the more I learned that not only is it a fascinating industry like ultra just strategic and competitive and nuanced mm-hmm. and just everything about it, the personalities this everything um but it's also so vital you know yeah. what i mean like i mean it has such such just like salient practical and policy implications for our health and what mm-hmm. we eat and just you know our our livelihoods and, and, and what we're spending our money on and just mm-hmm. everything right you know health outcomes in the united states and all that kind of stuff. So em- employment, right? Employment, yeah, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just feel like I'm, I'm in, you know. And I, and yeah. I just hope, I just hope that in my upper level elective classes, I just hope that I'm able to convey that to my students. Even if the only thing that I manage to do is make it clear to them how interesting I find it, yes, right? Then, yes. then maybe that'll click something for them. And yeah. a lot of them won't go specifically into the industry, mm-hmm. but if they're going to go on with their lives looking at food and supermarkets and food prices with new eyes, then I consider that a win. Yes. One last anecdote before I um, ask you the meal that you would eat on your deathbed. Um, I worked for a wine marketing <laughs> Don't be scared. Does that sound morbid? It's October. We could be morbid. Do you ask everybody that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So, But concentrate on what I'm saying for yeah, just a I'm, second. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Um, <laughs> I worked for a wine marketing company that's based uh, in San Luis Obispo. It was at the time. Uh, and we got a contract with a lot of local producers, wine producers around here, wind up uh, their juice, whatever their overage is, winds up in Trader Joe's proprietary wine labels. Great. And it was really fun 
to develop labels and copy and, and marketing stuff for that. The coolest day ever was going with my two, uh, my bosses, walking through Trader Joe's and looking at the labels on the shelf. At the time, I don't remember if it's this way still, but at the time you would walk and you'd see there's like this lip that comes up on the shelf to where, let's say an inch, an inch and a half, you can't see the bottom of the bottle. Well, a lot of these labels, especially imports, have the name or the the variety or whatever it is underneath that lip and you couldn't see it. So that was the first order of business. Here I'm thinking, what typeface are we going to use? Are we going to do embossing that? My boss said, no, first things first, let's make sure people can see it. Mm -hmm. So we're measuring, we're planning. And then one of the coolest things they did after that was they thought very much outside the box with the labels. We put music on the back of one of them, wrote a song about it. You mean you put the lyrics in the back? The lyrics and a, and some old music like that you could actually play on the piano. That was mine. And that's Dr. Jebediah Drinkwell's Meritage, <laughs> if you ever want to go and, and find that. But another thing they did was they thought about the cases, the wine cases. Um, it's this piece of real estate that they hadn't been using at Trader Joe's of something that could be could manifest in an effective and interesting way so we would design the case boxes so that if you rotated them one way or the other it could draw out like a human being i don't think i'm describing this very well but is you a case stack them a box yes you stack them and it can become it can become all these different things the way that you turn it and stack them up and so trader just started using our stuff on end caps it's just there's so much there and that's just a fraction of what you're talking about but it can be so exciting luring people into a narrative yes absolutely and raising that va- and added value you know so so that is an absolutely sort of like fan it, it's so emblematic right of everything that's that's going around and and what i would add to that mm-hmm. um is uh so living here in the central coast people don't talk about aldi a lot um no not at all has aldi come up at all in your no no so mm-hmm. Contrary to popular belief, um, Aldi does not own Trader Joe's. Yeah. Um, you know, are they um, German? They're, they're, they they both have the same parent German company. Okay, yeah. but it's two brothers who split apart a long time ago mm. and have very different models. Now you're talking about working with Trader Joe's yes. and sort of trying to build as much value as possible with the the packaging and the appearance of yeah. these products, right? Because that's so much of Trader Joe's, right? The experience is so much of that. Whereas Aldi's take is the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. Aldi doesn't really care what's on the label of the product as long as they're abiding by FDA. In fact, to the point where if you walk into an Aldi, and I think there's one somewhere around here, but I haven't bothered Mm. to even, I think there's one down in South County. Mm. At any rate, if you walk into Aldi, the products aren't even on the shelves directly. They leave the products in the boxes in which they were shipped from the vendors. What, behind like a can of green beans or something? Well, so cans of green beans come in a corrugated cardboard box, right? That corrugated cardboard box, the top gets ripped open and the box gets put directly on the shelf in the supermarket. So consumers reach into the box and pull the can out. They can't really even... It's hidden. Well, yeah, but it's not hidden in order to sort of hide information from consumers. Yeah, it's, it's it's practical. It's, it's hidden because 
all these labor costs are next to nothing, right? And the and the ideas that consumers get in, get out quickly, right? And what you're talking about, building value from what's on the cases, making sure that, you know, the wine label clears the yes. lip. Aldi doesn't care about any of that stuff, and right? And it's brothers. And it's two brothers, yeah. They had a, um, in the... They were all one company. The parent company is called Albrecht, German company, German hard discounter, hard, hard discounter, low prices, probably the most successful retail company in all of Western Europe, probably a food retail company. And in the 60s or 70s, they had a disagreement that broke their partnership because one of them wanted to sell cigarettes and the other one didn't. And so the brother who wanted to sell cigarettes became Trader Joe's. And the brother who didn't <laughs> kept the Aldi name, and he's the hard line discounter. And it's just really funny. Teaching here in California, in the uh-huh. Central Coast, everybody knows Trader Joe's. Everybody loves Trader Joe's. And people have this idea that there's this Aldi out there, but no one knows anything about it, right? You go to like Kansas, Michigan, yeah. Yeah. it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Aldi is everywhere. There are more Aldis than Trader Joe's. Yeah. Way more Aldis, right? Aldi is everywhere. And people have this idea that Trader Joe's is this is this fun surf shop. You know, healthy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And there's paintings on the wall, but like no one really knows. You know what I mean? And it's just so funny, right? How they're, they're such different models and the perspectives on them are so different because yeah. they're, they're focusing on almost polar opposite consumer, you know, clientele wow. base. I know. So, so we we have cigarettes to thank for Trader Joe's, which is really weird. That's exactly right. If they didn't disagree on that, and then yeah. and then there was a fellow who was living in Pasadena named Joe Colomb. I'm sure you know all about him. And he was building his own little sort of retail niche mm-hmm. where his, his entire vision was, um, I'm going to sell high-value products that people want. And I'm not going to worry so much about the product assortment as a whole. So I'm not going to worry about the big picture. I'm not going to make sure that we always have chocolate chips. I'm not going to make sure that we, you know, that all the bases are covered. We're just going to have this fun store where everything is profitable for me and in high demand for consumers. Mm-hmm. And the and if it runs out, it runs out. It, exactly. Okay. And the Albrecht brother, I can remember if it was Theo or the Albrecht brother who wanted to sell cigarettes saw a kindred spirit in Joe Cologne, and that's where Trader Joe's was born. And that's why its home is in Monrovia, California. That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is such a good story. <laughs> Thank you for that. All right. So let's say it's the last your last day on earth. I didn't even ask you where do you shop? Yeah. Um Are you not allowed to say? Oh no. Okay. No. Is it is it secret? No. Okay. Oh no, not at all. Me personally, I mean, Heather does more of the grocery shopping yeah. than I do. Um in terms of shopping frequency. Smart and final. But that is a function of its location. Uh, Are you over in that part of town? Yeah, we live over by just off Johnson, sort of by the French hospital. Oh, then that's And so it's right, it's a half mile from my house and it's on the way home. So if I've got to pick something up, I go to uh, just smart and final. Um, But me personally, if I have time, you know, and and I've got to do like a big big shopping trip, you know, I'm a big fan of the Trader Joe's Food for Less Run. I don't do it very often. Um, I'm a fan of it. Um, Hmm. And locally... That's pretty much it. I mean, I love, I love what CalFresh does. Yeah, and I'm in there regularly for their burritos and a couple other for things. for like prepared yep. stuff. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, if anyone hasn't tried them, oh, I know, I their know. breakfast burritos yeah. are fantastic. Although, but then you know, just as far away from us as Lincoln Deli, oh. and theirs is like right. Yes. So. But they're both, I love that they're both family, privately held, exactly. And, and exactly. they do make an excellent product. 100%. All right, thank you for sharing um, your shopping habits. So if it was your last day on earth, 
and you were so happy that you'd lived a good life. You've inspired all these students. You've moved the needle on things that you care about. And you were like, you know what? I'm going to do it up. I'm going to have a great last meal. What would it be? Yeah, I think, I, and I think it popped in my head right away when you asked me. That's why my, I went bug-eyed. Um, my favorite meal that I can even think of is very, very specific. It's mm. the uh, it's the rosemary fried chicken and waffles at Spoon Trade yes. down in uh, is that with in the sh- hot honey yeah, and yeah, the yeah, kimchi. Yeah. That's exactly right. Is that it is, is that Shelby? So good. Um, no, Grover. Grover. Yeah. At any rate. I think that's it. I can't think of a better choice than that. I mean, that meal brings me so much happiness, you know? Um, so I'm going to share that with them. That will make their day. Oh, that great. Is, yeah, yeah. It is such a good plate. Have they been on? Yes. Oh, great. Yeah. By all means, please pass that. Yes, along. I will. Yeah. Because yeah, they do great work. What would you drink with it? Oh, boy. Uh, okay. With that meal. Yes. With that meal, which, 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 you know, is obviously the alternating sweet and salty and all that. Fat. Um, fat, right. I personally don't think I would even try to pair a wine with it. I think I would just do an IPA. Yeah, you know? sure. Yep. Yes. Yep. Totally. Mm-hmm. Oh, sounds wonderful. <laughs> uh, I think that's all I've got for you, although we could talk for hours, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Ricky, for oh, coming Oh, this was on. super fun. Thanks so much for listening to The Consumed Podcast, which is now in its 15th season. Hard to believe. If you have suggestions for guests, questions, or comments about the show, please contact me via my website, letsgetconsumed.com. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter, buy a little consumed pin, or download live episodes. On Instagram, I'm at consumed.podcast. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. Until next time, thank you for listening.